Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to with Philip Crestamidis. Phil, did I pronounce your name correctly this time? Uh, well, it's close. Uh, Crestamidis. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. This is the this is the second time on, and by the third time, by your your next book, I will have your name uh, perfect. Um, oh, it's a okay. pleasure to have you back on to talk yes. about your your latest book, which is called Migrants and Race in the U.S. Territorial Racism and the Alien Outside, published this year by Routledge. You're part of the the two-timer club. Um, For those that didn't listen to our first interview, why don't you briefly tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are, um, uh, where you've been, and and anything else interesting about yourself? Sure. Uh, Well, I'm currently an associate professor of sociology at UMass Boston. I've been there, you know, for some time now, just about almost eight, a little over eight years. Um, you know, but I've I've taught and you know um, at you know a few other institutions in Canada, South Florida. You know, my alma mater is the University of Minnesota, um, and yeah, I've also uh, been in the policy world. But this book is, as you mentioned, it is very theoretical. Um, so yeah, the first book was a bit more closely informed by you know my I guess history of practical policy work, and this book kind of you know it does take a bit more of a macro historical and theoretical. Perspective that I guess has been informed by a lot of my reading and thinking since I you know, moved away from the policy world. Um, right, and yeah. you know this this in addition to to sort of the nature of the writing, it also seems to be a very personal book for you. Um, so much so that you begin the book with some some personal anecdotes. So I wonder if we can start um, uh, by talking a little bit how your background motivates this line of scholarship. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, the book is actually supposed to be more personal. And then, um, I guess because of the reading so much theory, it got more theoretical, I guess a bit more abstract than I wanted it to. I mean, initially, I wanted to, I mean, and I, have to, I should note that the, the personal angle of the book, it was, it was very deliberate because, you know, someone who, I mean, uh, I've been teaching race ethnicity for some time. So I, you could say I, I haven't published just in critical race theory, but I see myself as in part a critical race scholar. You know, it's, you know, it just means, you know, people who just sort of do social construction of race type of work, you know, those looks at social inequality. And in that, um, I guess, you know, uh, line of academic writing, it's fairly common for people to use first-person narratives, you know, to explore issues, you know, and, you know, um, autoethnography or also just ethnography, period, is used, you know, quite often, you know, um, in, 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 you know or, or also interview-based research. So the idea of you know, having like you know, someone like myself, you know, also I also forgot to mention, you know, who was also a racial minority of you know, a Jamaican and Greek background. You know, my family moved all over the place when I was young. I was born in Toronto, and we moved to England and Bahamas, and I grew up in South Florida. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm the sort of person who doesn't have a, I guess, you know, a real hometown per se. You know, um, you know, and that sort of shaped my experience. Um, but the goal was really to, was to write a book in. I guess in the tradition of a lot of these, you know, books written by you know black feminist scholars and what have you, you know, and other just you know the scholars that 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 foreground the author's personal experience and use it as a window, you know, into the issue. Um, 
and I, I began that way, even honestly, it gets very macro, you know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, as you move on. And actually, I didn't want it to get that way, but I, that was just the direction it began to take, you know, um, which is also, in a way, sort of how I write, where I'm, I, I, I use my experiences just because I feel like I need to be honest with people, where, like, where this is not arbitrary why I'm writing it from this perspective, and I think you need to know who I am. But... I'm also somewhat indifferent to my own experience because at some point you're using it as a jumping board to, in a way to actually get beyond yourself while also being honest about where you're starting from, you know, yeah. because at the same time, you know, I am, unlike a lot of other people who do write this, I'm not, there's a lot of books written about this where it's just coming from, say, like an Asian American studies experience or just from a black female experience. And I am actually trying to, you know, try to discuss what I call this field of visibility that really can, um, you know, that that affects, you know, a wide range of people. You know, like, you know I guess as a Jamaican, Greek, uh, mixed, black, whatever I am person, <laughs> you know, I don't really have an obvious constituency out there, you know, who's exactly the same as me. So I'm also hoping that Latino scholars and Asian studies people and all sorts of people with different backgrounds will hopefully see something useful in it, you know. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a very interesting book and and... Um, much of the book, is, as you just said, is, is, a, is about these abstract notions. And I think, in fact, when you first mentioned the book to me, that's exactly what you focused on. So let's talk about some abstract notions and, and how you approach them in the book. You draw this distinction between racialized and racial discrimination. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what some of the differences are that you see and, and how that helps to set up um, yeah. much of, your, uh, of the approach of the book. Yeah, and I should note too that yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely answer that question. That, but that also, I don't mean, I'll get to this a little, a little bit later. That the uh, there's so many ways that you can get at this issue, and unfortunately, after you publish the books, you know, you, there's always all the second guessing. And I don't know how it's going to be received because I, I do think that in part I'm making a somewhat controversial argument, at least in um, the context of some, you know, I guess traditions of race scholarship in the U.S. Um, and immigration is a very controversial issue too. So. I mean, I should emphasize here that the book really, you could look at this issue from many perspectives, but I really see it as an attempt to pluralize, to present like a pluralistic race analysis saying that, you know, essentially, you know, migrants are racialized in ways that are distinct in some ways from, say, black racialization, which tends to really sort of historically define racialization in the U.S., you know. Um, but, you, you know, so they can be racialized in ways that's similar to that history of black racialization, where you're just seeing mainly as non-whites. But when they are racialized, it's also possible for them to be racialized in qualitatively distinct ways, um, which actually, you know, in a way, like, gets to your, like, the question you asked, which is, you could say that racialization just really has to do with the way that things are racially coded, and it doesn't necessarily, you know, and the fact that something is racially coded doesn't necessarily mean that the racial coding is informed by a racist ideology, like, you know, like the fact that, I don't know, like, you know, you notice that somebody is black, you know, or somebody looks Asian, even if they're not, you know, like maybe the Native American, or maybe, you know, there are um, some, you know, Central American people that look Asian-ish to people in the U.S., you know, like the fact that you notice those distinctions and you attach labels to them that are racial ethnic doesn't mean that you that we're racist, you know. Um, or the fact that someone might look at me, you know, and think that, okay, I'm Latino in some context, or black in others, or not black enough in others, in of itself, that isn't being racist, you know, but it is noticing, you know, it's, it's being aware of, the, you know, just the relevance of racial codes, you know, so I sort of distinguish, you know, this r- r- racial coding from 
you know, from actual acts of discrimination, you know, which then use the racial code to discriminate. And also, in a way, also from racist ideologies as well, you know, that you don't necessarily, you know, have to think that somebody is inferior because you happen to notice or see them, you know, in a certain racial light. Even though this book is a bit complex, and that I, also because the book does get into the history of it, I mean, the racial codes, even though in the present day, the fact that we notice them doesn't mean that we're racist, the racial codes do come, from, like, out of a racist history. You know, it's because, you know, going back hundreds of years, you know, you know, our social world has been structured in a racial way that was initially structured to, you know, justify inequality, justify it in terms of race, that they do come out of a racist history, you know, um, in the, you know, but it doesn't mean that, again, the racial code is, um, being, you know, the fact that we notice the racial code or that we use it, it doesn't necessarily automatically mean that we're racist. Yeah, maybe we um, can you know, play... Yeah, maybe we could play this out a little bit more because I think a couple of these kind of um, dichotomies, um, for lack of a better term, are really at the heart of the book. And so um, maybe we can continue this um, by talking about how you conceptualize some of the differences or or similarities between anti-immigrant and anti-black racism. Um, This is this is another piece of of what you're talking about. And, And how does how does that move ahead your argument, thinking about the difference between those two terms? Yeah, well, it's a tough topic to talk about because I, because really, well, in part because, and I get it a little bit in the book, even though I could probably, you know, but, but it's sort of like a tangential, you know, observation that the history of race, especially to go back, you know, to the early discourses on racial supremacy, is yeah. heavily weighted in moralism. You know, it's these moralistic distinctions, you know. Um, and uh, I think because of that history, there's, there's a lot of moralism surrounding discourse, including also discourses on, on, on racial justice or, you know, like criticizing racism. And so I think because in the U.S., um, you know, for obvious reasons, we have a history that has been defined, you know, in large part by this history of, you know, like when we think about race, it's in terms of white-black. Um, if you begin to steer the argument or at least an analysis of race away from that a little bit, um, sometimes, sometimes it seems like you're doing something wrong, or you're trying to, you know, perhaps you're even, you know, like you're sort of trying to um, water down, you know, the relevance of this legacy of anti-black racism. And so it's, you know, I've, I mean, again, with, with the book gets into this in some depth, but I find that, you know, out of very good intentions, you know, that there, there are many, I, I think, migration scholars and also minorities doing migration scholarship that want to show that they're sympathetic to the issue of anti-black racism and also, you know, um, in the end, you know, like to frame, I guess, uh, uh, issues of migration or race in ways that affirm their solidarity with the issues that black people are going through in the U.S., right? And, yeah, and again, because of my own history, since, I mean, in many respects, I mean, I am a black person, I mean, you know, definitely part of my legacy you know, comes out of the black experience, and I'm also somebody who's, who's you know, been actually like a part in my scholarship, my, my, my peer community, you know, part of the black community and the black, and the black intellectual culture. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I understand where that's, I guess you could say where that's all coming from, you know, like that desire to sort of show that your solidarity with this other group. But as a result, it leads to a situation where sometimes I think people are, um, he gets overlooked or just a bit shy about acknowledging the ways in which, you know, migrants um, can be set apart racially from other minorities, you know, for, for, for good or for ill. Um, I mean, oftentimes in, in the literature, what it talks about, and it does definitely happen, of how migrants 
can be deemed more acceptable by U.S. natives by distinguishing them from blacks. You know, so the migrant gets accepted because they really push themselves away from blacks and emphasize their non-blackness. You know, and that definitely happens in all levels. Like this book's written about South Asians and also just other Southeast Asians and and you know, um, and even other other also black immigrants as well. You know, that, that, that look at that dynamic. You know, but I think also. The thing is that what I do is I also try to emphasize, you know, the relevance, even though I look in the broad sweep of history, but also the relevance of, uh, you know, of what's happened since the new migration, you know, that really began to peak in the early 90s. And we, and we live in an era now where it's, you know, it's odd. When I began this book, the recession was just beginning to like sink in, you know. And I think when I, you know, really, that this book was informed really by experiences, um, like frustrations I had with doing community work and, and dealing with, this field of racial visibility and honestly, I, I think acts of anti-immigrant racism that didn't click in people's minds because it didn't conform to their, you know, um, how they saw race, you know, like, uh, normally working. Um, but these were experiences. And, and could you, really, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just ask you for, is there an example of this that, that you think really does make this point? You, you provided numerous examples of the book, but is there, is there one that you think kind of, you know, uh, uh, tells this story clearly? Uh, okay, well, I'd say that, well, it, well, I, I, I use a few examples of the book. I mean, like, one example I use, and, and, and I mean, I, I do begin the book with examples in South Florida, you know, which was, which actually is, I mean, like, I guess the, in terms of, like, the macro context of South Florida, it's a really good example because you, you have a situation where uh, you know, there, there's an African American population, like a Native population, which has historically felt marginalized and was really, in, in part, I guess you could say they were disadvantaged by the flow of, of Cuban migrants that came over, like in the 1960s and 70s. You know, um, you know, who, you know, many of whom initially came from the Cuban upper class, and so there was this pre-existing tension, you know, between you know uh, black minorities feeling that they were kind of pushed aside by the federal government, you know, for this aid that really went to help these, uh, these anti-communist Latinos, um, you know, and that kind of shaped this, this this history, which really wasn't about just race. It was about politics and, and other things, but but it shaped this context in which there is this longstanding, uh, I guess you could say, history of tensions between native-born minorities and immigrant minorities in, in South Florida. Like, it's further complicated, like, when you have Central American and, and, and Latinos, you know, from, from other parts of the world, you know, from other parts of Latin America coming in there, Haitian migrants coming in there. And me sort of growing up in South Florida, I really felt this, like, like a lot of this palpable just tension between these different minority groups, you know, um, especially given that it really was sort of like a majority-minority part of the world at that time. I mean, like, like most people in Dave Broward County when I was, when I was growing up, you know, really were, were non-white. You know, um, but as, as a result of that, there's a lot of tension, you know, and, and so I saw a lot of that going on, practically speaking. But in the book, like, like one clear example I used, there was um, the Bill Cosby for president um, uh, uh, meme or, <laughs> or uh, you know, like an um, um, email hoax that went around, right, that, uh, you know, which um, came out, uh, I think, just, just about like a few months after, you know, uh, Obama, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, declared his, well, like, you know, his, I, I believe it was around the same time as Obama bid for presidency, you know, like his 2008 candidacy. Um, you know, and uh, Bill Cosby was falsely associated with essentially like this sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, popular nationalist anti-immigrant campaign, you know, uh, you know, uh, like a like platform, you know, which among other things called for, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, um, shutting down the borders and, you know, in orders to like, you know, uh, shoot on, 
you know, uh, well, implicitly, rather orders not to shoot on, 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 on immigrants, like as long as they're going south across the border, that it implicitly means that you, know, you can shoot them if they're coming towards the border, uh, you know, like if, if you're trying to enter, you know, like, and, and if you're going to sort of, you know, just, I guess you could say, classic sort of nativist tropes, you know, in, in, in terms of what, like, a nativist policy platform would be. You know, and I mentioned in the book about, you know, how, you know, it, it's a kind of really kind of funny, you know, uh, uh, odd little, uh, you know, uh, email hoax that, that, that made its way around various, I guess, um, you know, uh, conservative websites, but it really was indicative of this broader body of discourse that really was being cultivated um, in, in the 90s and still around today you know, as well, you know, where there's an attempt to sort of construct um, black natives as the unique, as these unique victims of, of, of immigration. And, and by the way, there also is, I mean, you know, I've mentioned the book, I mean, there is actual, I mean, there is some structural proof of that, you know, like where, you know, uh, native born minorities are, you know, more vulnerable, you know, than, um, than and especially lower uh, skilled uh, native born minorities are more vulnerable to displacement, you know, than, than, than other native workers. But, but there really was an attempt in that email hoax to, to basically, you know, uh, I guess you could say, fan the flames of that tension, you know, and and to produce this discourse in which you know blacks can be re, you know can be sort of rehabilitated as fellow natives with whites, um, but while at the same time you know kind of drawn you know uh, drawn attention to this field of visibility in which um, you could say that the, the person who is visibly you know or or, or culturally conspicuously non-white and non-native. Becomes seen as the source of the new race problem, you know, in, in a way, you know, um, right. you know, but it's a, you know, but you know, but it's a different kind of race problem. Right? Um, so that's, I mean, like that's like what one really concrete example that I spend some time talking about. Yeah. Now, in, in chapter six, uh, you move from from the abstract to the somewhat more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how this discussion and some of these abstract ideas relate to immigration today and, and to ideas of illegality and, and visa uh, status that, that you really address towards the end of the book? Yeah, well, yeah, sure. They do. Well, the thing is that this is one of the things, when you get into the actual, you know, to begin connecting it to policy issues, I mean, it, it raises, I mean, the thing is that my critique of, say, well, my attempt, like, just to draw attention to the fact that there is this, you could say, field of visibility in which migrants can be racially distinguished from native whites and blacks, you know, that there's a kind of racialization that's distinct to migrants. Um, I mean, that was just a general point that I'm making in the book. But, of course, you know, uh, that isn't necessarily like the same thing as actually, you know, proposing like a policy solution for, you know, all the complexities of migration policy today. You know, so, for example... Even if I, you know, I mean, I mean, even if I sort of point critically to the fact that you know the immigrant racialization exists, it doesn't mean, for example, that there aren't real problems with the way that migration works in the U.S. today, you know, or that there isn't, you know, there aren't exploitative migration policies. So, like, in, like in chapter six, like one thing I you know, I could pull out when I was dealing with that is, you know, is, um, and I don't know if this maybe gets at what, what you were asking me to, so definitely mm-hmm. feel free to scare me if I'm going a bit off track. Is that you know? Is that I do point out how, for example, there is a way in which, um, you know, for example, uh, immigration enforcement, you know, can be guided by, you know, in probably you know some you know like a like racialized profiles, which you know get focused on a certain part of town that's known to have you know Latinos or where somebody because they look Latino like might be screened you know um you know um uh, more 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 closely than someone else like there are like a lot of anecdotes, um you know like, that come out of the research on that, but. 
where the policing of the, uh, I guess you could say, of this national border, and it really isn't a policing of the literal border. It really, it really like, like all this policing happens inside the nation. It really, you know, in, if you look at it in, in the macro picture, it isn't really articulated necessarily with this, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, I guess, nationalist, you know, shut down the border, you know, uh, uh, enforcement agenda. It really is something that, that uh, uh, can be articulated with a, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I believe I use the term neoliberal a few places in the book, you know, but 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 with a much more kind of fluid, uh, uh, I guess you could say, kind of an enforcement that just selectively targets, you know, um, migrant populations um, uh, for the purposes of, of labor market regulation. You, you know, like like we you know, like throughout U.S. history, and you know, those people like go back to Kitty Calavita, who really I think did the first least great study that I'm aware about this on Operation Wetback, you know, where Operation Wetback, is, and I mentioned this even in, in, in the first book, Immigration Crucible, too, you know, where um, it sometimes is framed as this, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, like a, a border control effort, you know, but it, you know, but it largely was, um, you know, this effort to reduce the size of a quote-unquote surplus population of, 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 of guest workers, you know, and also and unauthorized migrants when they were deemed to be, you know, too many of them, you know, like like a glut of them in, in local labor markets. And after that population was reduced, you know, sufficiently, it, it did grow again over time. You know, and 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 so the, you know, there really is evidence, you know, at least you know, of this sort of labor market regulation model of immigration enforcement, which really is about, you know, just keeping the migrant workforce at an optimal level, you know, for employers more so than you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, regulating it for the sake of protecting, you know, like wages for native workers, um, and, you know, or, or whatever else, or, or just keeping labor markets tight, you know. Um, you know, and there's this argument that also comes out of even some of the unions today, you know, as well, you know, that, that really, um, immigration enforcement is, at least not by itself, is not really the most effective way of dealing with a lot of the economic issues, um, you know, that, um, you know, that are, you know, that, that people are concerned about, like, when it comes to, displacement of, of, of native workers that really they can need better labor law enforcement, you know, or at least stronger labor law enforcement in tandem with, you know, maybe, you know, um, with, with a more reasonable immigration enforcement, you know, but the kind of immigration enforcement that we're seeing now is, you know, um, again, it's, I mean, that's a whole other body of, I guess, analysis, which is related to the book, which I don't get to in great depth, but I do touch it in, in chapter six, you know, but, but that kind of enforcement, the enforcement we see now, it still seems to be, in, in large part, in line with um, you know this history of regulating labor markets for the sake of you know um, of I guess improving their productivity and the utility for employers, I guess you could say. Um, right. You know, yeah. But, but the key thing though, is, which I do mention in the book, is that how though this this field of immigrant visibility or, or, or immigrant racialization can be articulated with that, because you get focused on you know who belongs in the nation, you know. As a, you know, uh, or, or not, and, and then how they get symbolized just by someone's cultural difference or their appearance, um, and then yeah, and then how you know that might sort of lead people just to sort of you know be you know so like see it as just sort of normal common sense that certain folks get deported and certain folks don't, but not really thinking about well does you know do these you know do, does this racial lives common sense or even do these national distinctions really get at the root of you know the economic problems facing native workers, for example, you know, yeah. or migrant workers, right? No, no 
I, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I enjoyed the first the first book. I don't know if it was your first book, but I enjoyed the first book we had on the podcast, and I enjoyed this latest one. Uh, Phil's book is titled uh, "Migrants and Race in the U.S." Territorial Racism and the Alien Slash Outside, published and available uh, through Routledge uh, this year. Phil, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thanks a lot. Yes, and, and thanks again for uh, you know for being willing to interview me uh, like a second time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah.